Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Yeah, great. All right, cool. Um, well, hey, let's go uh, Romans chapter 2. Romans 2 will be uh, hanging out there this morning. Um, so a few years ago, uh, I was having a conversation with a student who had recently gotten uh, involved with us, and uh, she says, you know, I, uh, I'm absolutely shocked <laughs> that I'm involved at Christ Chapel. And I said, okay, like, what? like why? And I'll never forget what she told me next. She said, you know, my sophomore year, I swore that I would never be involved with Christ Chapel because the girls in my sorority house that raved about Christ Chapel, the ones that thought Christ Chapel was so awesome, those were the girls that would come home at three o'clock in the morning just completely wasted. And I was the one who on Saturday night would hold their hair back as they threw up and then watch them skip off to church on Sunday as if that wasn't hypocritical. As if that wasn't bizarre that you could live one life on Saturday and live a completely different life on Sunday. And so when I saw that happen, I, I thought, I'm, I'm out. Like I, like, I don't want anything to do with a church like that. And when she said that, I was hit by two things. One, I was hit by empathy. Um, because my college experience was the college experience that she was describing. I was the guy for so much of my college experience, I was the one who would uh, party late into Saturday night and then roll out of bed just in time to go to church and act like Saturday night didn't happen. So I have a level of empathy if that's your story because like, that's my story. And I understand this kind of weird feeling of, man, I want to follow Christ. I want to follow Jesus. But I also feel this gravitational pull towards the college experience. So one, I'll start with empathy because I, I understood that part. But second, I, th I thought about what she was saying, and I thought, man, it makes total sense. Her frustration makes total sense. Because there is something infuriating about hypocrisy. Right? Like, <laughs> there's something absolutely infuriating about hypocrisy, especially within the church. Right? In fact, maybe that's your story. Maybe you have avoided the church for a long time because you couldn't stand the hypocrisy that you saw growing up. Or maybe you've avoided Christians for a long time because you value authenticity and every Christian you've ever known just seems so fake. It's valid. And if that's you, like, I, I'm with you. It makes total sense. There are few things as infuriating as hypocrisy. But I have good news. The God that we serve also hates hypocrisy. The God that we serve over and over makes it clear that hypocrisy should not be something that characterizes his people. And it's all over scripture. When, when, when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus pulls no punches when it comes to hypocrisy. Like he calls out these uh, religious leaders and those who are uh, religious, who, who live these kind of hypocritical lives. Like he calls them out. And all throughout scripture, we see all these passages about hypocrisy. And the passage that we're going to read today in Romans 2 is one of those texts where we will see that we have a God 
who's not okay with hypocrisy. And as a result, we should not be okay with hypocrisy either. So here's what I want to do today. It's really simple. It's really hard, but it's really simple. I want us to begin to take steps to root out the hypocrisy in our lives. I want us to begin to take some steps to root out hypocrisy in our lives. Because again, the reality is that if our God is not okay with hypocrisy marking his church, then we should not be okay with hypocrisy either. And so I want to dive into this text and figure out how do we begin to make some steps in our own lives where we rid ourselves and rid this community of hypocrisy. Because the reality is we can't change hypocrisy on a global scale, right? But we can start in this room. We can't change this sort of stigma that Christians are hypocrites from a a national or global scale, but we can start in this room and make sure that the Jesus followers in this room are not, mark, are not marked by hypocrisy. So that's where we're going today. One last thing before we dive in. If you're in the room and you're not a believer, you would not call yourself a follower of Christ. Um, one, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm, 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 I'm honestly honored. Uh, there's a million things that you could do on a Sunday, primarily brunch. That's honestly way more fun than church, honestly. And so uh, I'm, I'm honored and stoked that you, you're here. Um, but if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ, Um, I want you to understand that today is the day where you get to just sit back and relax. I think one of the biggest mistakes that Christians make is we hold people to a standard that they've never agreed to, specifically ours, right? Like for for those of us who, who claim to follow Christ, like we have said that the word of God is our standard of truth. That is the standard by which we live our lives. And so often we take our standards and put them on other people, but they've never even agreed to live by that standard. So when I talk about hypocrites, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about people within the church who say, hey, I follow Christ. His word is my authority. That's what I'm talking about. So if you're in the room and not a follower of Christ, welcome, sit back, relax, and watch the word of God um, own the people of God who choose to live hypocritical lives. So um, I'm glad that you came this morning. So let's dive in. Let's pick it up in Romans chapter two, starting in verse 12. It says this, it says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All right, let me preface this by saying, the way that Paul is writing in this chapter um, can be a little tough to understand. So I'm going to paraphrase a lot. And so what's happening is Paul is about to make an argument. He's about to make an argument um, essentially describing that, that God is not okay with hypocrisy among his people, right? And like any good argument, he's going to have some premises that kind of build his ultimate conclusion. And the first premise that Paul is trying to get at here is this, is that we all have a moral law written on our hearts. That we all have a moral law written on our hearts, meaning that, that, that whether you follow Christ or not, whether you are spiritual or not, we all instinctually know what is right and what is wrong. Right? C.S. C.S. Lewis actually says, um, says it like this. He says, the first thing to get clear about Christian morality between man and man is that in this department, Christ did not come to preach any brand new morality. The golden rule of the New Testament, the do as you would be done by, do as 
do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, is a summing up of what everyone at bottom has always known to be right. What, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that, hey, on our worst day, like at bottom, we all know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Now, here's why that's so important for us to understand. We live in a culture um, that is a morally relativistic culture, or at least that's what we preach. We preach a moral relativism, meaning that what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. I have no business telling you what is right or wrong. You have no business telling me what is right or wrong, right? Like you live your, your truth, I'll live mine, and, like, and, we'll, and we'll be good. Right? Like, there's, there's no such thing as a moral absolute. Like, you do you, I do me, and we're good. Right? Like, that's what our culture preaches. The problem is that our culture doesn't actually practice that. Right? Um, prime example. When the Harvey Weinstein story broke and kind of set off the Me Too m- movement, no one came out and said, ah, I don't know, I think Harvey Weinstein was just living out his truth. Right? Like, I don't know. Like, let's slow down. Who are we to say that Harvey Weinstein's in the wrong? No, no. Like, no one said, said that. As a culture, we unanimously said, hey, can we all agree that sexual assault is wrong? And everyone said yes. So can we all agree that sexual assault is this wicked, deplorable evil that is attacking someone created in the image of God? And everyone says yes, even though they might not use that phrase. Like, they, they, like we all drew a line in the sand and said, this is wrong. No one came to Harvey Weinstein's rescue and says, I don't know, man, I, I, I just think he's living out his truth. No, why? Because whether you follow Christ or not, we have a moral law written on our hearts. There's something within us that we just know that certain things are right, certain things are wrong. And that's what Paul's first kind of premise is, is that at bottom, we all have a moral law written on our hearts. But Paul's actually about to add to his argument by adding another premise. And the next premise is this, is that we all have a moral law written on our hearts, but followers of Christ also have it written on paper. We all have a moral law written on our hearts. Look down at verse 17 of Romans 2, and I'll show you what I mean. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, And if you know his will and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, because you're instructed by the word of God, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, saying, if you you believe that you know the will of God, that you know what is right and wrong because of the word of God, you then who teach others, do you not also teach yourself? Meaning, do, do you practice what you preach? It says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who, you, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what Paul's trying to get at in this text is that while we have a moral law written on our hearts, we also have it written on paper. For those of us who call um, Christ our Lord, our, our sa- Savior, God has graciously provided a level of clarity for us, right? a level of clarity that, that, that says, hey, like, you're, you're kind of gut check that maybe this isn't okay, or you're gut check that maybe this isn't going to play out well for you. The word of God has graciously said, yeah, you're right. It's not. 
right? The word of God has graciously provided clarity to what is right and wrong, but more specifically, it's provided clarity to how our God has created the world to work for his glory and for our joy, right? And so what's happening is he's saying, hey, look, I want you to understand that we have it written on our hearts. We all instinctually know, but our God has been gracious enough to provide clarity through his word, which brings Paul to his ultimate conclusion, which is this. It says that since we have unrestricted access to the truth, we have no excuse in living a life contrary to that truth. Let me say that again. What Paul is trying to ultimately communicate is this, that since we have unrestricted access to the truth, we have no excuse in living a life that is contrary to that truth. Here's what I mean. Um, in, in Romans 1, Paul made an argument about our worship. And he says, hey, we have a tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator. And the creation is awesome, but the creator is the one who's actually worthy of worship. He says, and the, the, the reality is that since you can see the creator in creation, you have no excuse to worship the creation rather than the creator. And what Paul's saying here is, hey, since you know, both, both based on the, the law written on our hearts, but also by the word of God, since you know the truth, since you have unrestricted access because God has been gracious enough to give you the truth, you have no excuse to live a life that's contrary to that truth. There's no excuse of like, oh, I didn't know. No, like it's, it's here. God has been gracious enough to not let us figure it, figure it out on our own, He's been gracious enough to say, hey, like, I, I love you enough to show you how I've created the world to work for your joy. I'm not trying to rob you of joy. I'm not trying to be some kind of cosmic buzzkill. I've, I've, I've given you everything you know how to navigate the world that I've created with joy and life, right? It's, it's clear, right? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, in John 13, uh, Jesus says this, and I, and I love the clarity of uh, how he, he talks. He says, the new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. And then he says, just as I have loved you, so, so just as I, Jesus, have loved you through my selfless, sacrificial love, right, you also are to love one another. And by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? So what I love about the way that Jesus talks here is there's no, there's, there's no confusion, and he says, hey, look, I've loved you in a very specific way. I've, I've laid down my life for you. I've sacrificed for you. I've shown you grace. I've shown you forgiveness. That's how I have loved you. And if you want people to know that you follow me, then you just go love people the way that I've loved you. That's like, like it's, it's that easy, right? And so what I love about this is there's clarity for us, right? We have unrestricted access to this type of truth, which means that there's no excuse when we do the opposite. Right? There's no excuse when we say, well, I don't know if that's what, exactly what that means. Right? It means that there's no excuse when we're a jerk to our roommate just because they're getting on our nerves. There's no excuse for that. There's, there's, there, there's no excuse to live a life that is contrary to the truth that we see in Scripture. That's, that's what Paul's ultimately saying. Right? We have no excuse to be hypocrites. Now, maybe you hear, hear that and think, all right, I understand that hypocrisy isn't a good look. I understand that maybe hypocrisy isn't the best thing. Um, but let's be honest. Christians have been hypocrites for a long time. It's kind of our thing. Um, so what, uh, what makes us think it's that big, big of a deal? Why is it that big of a deal if I choose to ignore all this, right? 
Is hypocrisy a big deal? The reality is yes. Short answer, yes, it's a huge deal. Long answer, it's a big deal for a couple reasons, and I want to walk us through it. The first reason that hypocrisy is a big deal is that it reveals a fundamental misunderstanding about our relationship with Christ. Hypocrisy is a huge deal because it reveals a fundamental misunderstanding about our relationship with Christ. Namely, that to love him is to obey him. Right? To love him is to obey him. In, uh, in John 15, Jesus says, says this, and again, I love his clarity. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Right? Like, I mean, it's, so, it's so clear. He says, hey, look, like, if you love me, you're, you're going to do what I ask you to do. You're going to trust me enough to do what I've asked you to do. And if you don't love me, then you're, you're not. It's kind of it. Right? And so what's happening is that um, when we live a life where we are completely, um, or when we completely disregard the words of Christ, when we refuse to obey him, when we refuse to actually trust him enough to do what he's called us to do, it reveals that there's a fundamental misunderstanding about our relationship to Jesus. Because to love him is to actually do what he's called us to do. It's to live the way that he's called us to live. Right? And so what hypocrisy does for us is it kind of creates a, a lens with which we can kind of view ourselves and it helps us realize, do I love the idea of following Christ? Or do I actually love following Christ? Do I love the idea of following Christ? Or do I actually love him enough to surrender my life and to do what he's called me to do? Because I think a lot of us, we, I mean, we love the idea of it. I know very few people that don't like the idea of the person of Jesus. Right? He's kind, gracious, he's awesome, he loves everybody. Like, I mean, who, who doesn't love that, right? But when you listen to his teachings, he says, hey, if you're going to follow me, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust that my word, as backwards as it might be in your culture, as backwards as it might be, as inconvenient as it might be, I need you to trust me that I, since I created the world, I know how it works for your joy. Do you actually trust me enough to obey, to actually listen to what I've called you to do? So that's, that's the first reason why hypocrisy is a big deal is because it reveals a fundamental misunderstanding about our relationship to Christ. But the second is this, is that it ruins our witness, that it ruins our witness. Look back at Romans 2 verse 24. Paul finishes by saying, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Um, in, in kind of more modern English, what he's saying is that your hypocrisy makes a mockery of the name of Jesus. Your hypocrisy makes a mockery out of the name of Jesus. Like no one has any reason to take us seriously because of our hypocrisy, right? And you know this, right? Like, like that, that, that's probably not a shocker to you. That's probably not news to you. I mean, you live in the same world that I do. You understand that for a long time, people have, have used our hypocrisy as a, a reason to stiff arm Jesus, to stiff arm the gospel of Jesus, right? A famous quote that's been attributed to Gandhi. I don't know if he actually said it, but the sentiment holds, holds true is this. Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians, for your Christians are so unlike your Christ. 
I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because they're just not like your Christ. Now again, whether he actually said this or not, I don't know, but the sentiment holds true. Like you can see people all over the world who for a long time have decided, I want nothing to do with the church. I want nothing to do with the gospel. I want nothing to do with Jesus or his followers. Why? Because I'm so turned off by their hypocrisy. Because their master says some really incredible things, but his followers, they just don't do it. The reality is that the world is so distracted by our hypocrisy in such a way that people cannot marvel at the grace of Jesus Christ because they're just distracted by the hypocrisy of his followers. And so it's a huge deal. It's a massive, massive deal. Now, what I want us to do in the moments that we have left is I want us to look inward. Because this really funny thing happens when we talk about hypocrisy that we immediately think of other people, right? Like, when I said the word hypocrisy starting off, you might have immediately thought of some other person and thought, I'm going to send them a link, right? Like, you know, I want them to know, like, they need to see this, right? Like, I wish they were here, but they're not because they're sinners, right? Like, that's, that's probably what went through your head, right? We, we immediately think hypocrisy is about other people. And very rarely do we stop and look at our own heart and our own life and say, wait, am I? Am I the hypocrite? Am, am I the one that's distracting? Am I the one that, that's keeping people from really seeing and marveling at the gospel because of the way that I live my life? Is that, is that me? I think that is a question that we all need to be humble enough to ask ourselves. To say, all right, am, am I a hypocrite? So, I'm going to ask you a few questions that I call diagnostic questions. And they're questions that really allow us to uh, take an honest look. So if you're a note taker, write these down. Ask them uh, to yourself this week. Ask your friends about it. Because if you don't know, I guarantee you, your friends will. Um, so first question is this. Is your obedience selective? Is your obedience selective? Meaning, do you only obey what you feel like obeying? Do you obey what doesn't cost you social capital? Do you obey different things in different seasons? Do you obey different things in different friend groups? Do you only obey when it's convenient, when it doesn't cost you? If so, if your obedience is selective, then you might be more of a hypocrite than you think. Second question is this. Do you talk a big game publicly? about living a life that looks like Christ while doing the opposite behind closed doors? Do you talk a big game pub publicly about living a life that looks like Christ while doing the opposite behind closed doors? Now, that's a question that only you can answer, right? But my guess is that you pro probably know. Maybe you find yourself in a spot where publicly, I mean, you talk a big game about how pornography is destructive, it's not good for our expectations. It's objectifying people. So publicly, you will condemn pornography, but maybe you find yourself just lingering on an Instagram photo a little too long. Or maybe publicly, you, you condemn gossip. And you've been on the receiving end of gossip, and you know how absolutely destructive gossip can be. But when you're with your crew, like the ones who really know your heart, that's when you let it fly. That's when all bets are off. Because, no, like, like, but those are my people. 
Or maybe you have this posture where you publicly condemn or maybe even judge your roommates for partaking in hookup culture. But you're absolutely silent about the physical lines that you tend to cross in your relationship. I don't know. But do you talk a big game publicly about living a life that looks like Christ while actually doing the opposite behind closed doors? Do you find creative ways to do it behind closed doors when no one else is looking? If so, I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you. But you might be a bit more of a hypocrite than you think. How about this? Maybe it's more internal. Right? I think we, we all have this, this, this ability to, to, to externally have a kind of squeaky clean image, but maybe there's hypocrisy going on internally. So let me ask you this. Are you quick to receive the forgiveness of Christ, but slow to extend it to others? Are you quick to receive the forgiveness of Christ, but slow to extend it to others? There's this gut check of a story uh, that Jesus tells that we call the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in this story, uh, this guy comes before a king and he owes him a massive amount of money that he'll never be able to pay back. In our day, it's like $6 billion. It's a ton of money. And the king has mercy on him. And he forgives his debt. He says, I I know that you're never going to be able to pay it. I got you. You're forgiven. And he walks away and he's like elated and he's excited. I mean, just this weight off his shoulders. And as he's walking home, he sees a guy that owes him a couple bucks. A guy that essentially owes him a happy meal in comparison to the debt that was just forgiven. And he sees him and he's filled with rage and he goes and he chokes him out. And what Jesus is trying to communicate in that story is that there is something so hypocritical when we have been forgiven a debt that we can never repay when we've been extended grace, yet we refuse to forgive and extend it to others. So maybe that's you. Maybe you are in a place where you think, man, externally, I'm good. I don't live a double life. I don't, I don't do hypocritical things. I am, and I am consistent. I have integrity. But when you look on the inside, when you look internally, you're filled with rage and bitterness and unforgiveness And you refuse to extend the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that you have received from Jesus. If that's you, you're better at hiding it, but you might be more of a hypocrite than you think. Now, maybe you hear hear that and think, okay, I don't need to go any further. I'm a hypocrite. Um, If that's you, you're in good company. Don't tell anybody. I'm also one of you. Um, I'm also a hypocrite. Um, the, the reality is that we all are. We all have moments in our life where we're just, like, we're just not consistent. We just fall short. And so the question is, what do we do? What do we do? If we find that we are way more hypocritical than we even thought walking into this room, what do we do? I want to close by challenging you to do one simple thing. Repent. Repent. The word repent is a word that we don't use a whole lot anymore, uh, primarily because it sounds aggressive, it sounds harsh, it kind of has like a fire and brimstone vibe to it. But the word repent is actually an incredibly beautiful word that we need to reclaim and redeem because it's a word that in the New Testament, it's a Greek word that means to change one's mind. It's to change one's mind. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and says, hey, repent, for the kingdom of God is here, he's saying, hey, forget everything you thought you knew. 
Forget everything you thought you knew about how the kingdom of God works. Change your mind because the kingdom of God is here and it's going to blow your minds. It's this beautiful word that says, hey, just change our minds. And so for us, what repenting looks like is coming to the realization that, hey, maybe I'm distracting. Maybe my life is keeping people from marveling at the grace of God in a way that's, and that, that breaks my heart. And so I, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change the way that I think about the way that I live. I'm going to change my mind about what it looks like to chase after Jesus in college. Change your mind. Maybe it means that you come to a place where you realize I'm not okay with living two different lives anymore. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with being a distraction. I'm not okay with living a life that is just flat out hypocritical. Right? What does it look like for you to change your mind, to repent, to change the way you think and go do something else? Let me say this. The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. It's consistency. I think that oftentimes when we hear talks like this, it's so daunting because we think, oh, to not be a hypocrite, I have to be perfect. Breathe, you don't. The opposite of hypocrisy is consistency. The beauty of the gospel is that the whole gospel hinges on the idea that we have never been and can never be perfect. So what Christ has done for us is he was perfect on our behalf. And so when he went to the cross, this crazy exchange took place. This crazy unfair exchange where he took on our imperfection and gave us his perfection. And so now we can approach God with boldness and joy and confidence, not because we've earned it, not because we've done something amazing to, to make God like us more. No, but because when God sees us, he sees the sacrifice of Jesus made for us. And he sees the, the, the perfection of Christ given to us. And he says, yeah, come on. You're my boy. You're my girl. Like, let's, let's go. We don't have to be perfect because Christ has already been perfect for us. Our job now is to be consistent. It's to get up consistently, follow after Christ, to own when we fail, because we're going to fail. We're all going to fall short. But to own when we fail, get up and keep on going. And just imagine for a second what this community could look like if we chose to be consistent. If we chose to say, hey, I want to take the word of God seriously. I'm tired of picking and choosing. I'm tired of living this way with certain friends and living this way with other friends. I'm, I'm so tired of being a distraction. I'm so tired of the back and the forth. Man, I just want to live consistently after Christ. And I have to believe that God would do a work in this place where people would marvel. They would marvel at the grace of Jesus Christ because they can actually see it clearly for the first time. The reality, the reality is that people cannot marvel at the gospel of Jesus Christ when they're distracted by his followers. They just can't. So may we be a people who take the word of God seriously, who understand our relationship with the Lord in such a way where we'd say, I'm done living two lives. I want to chase solely after him and allow people to marvel at the gospel and the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, you are abundantly kind to us. 
You are constant and you are steadfast in the midst of our hypocrisy. Um, for one, I'm moved that you would even lay down your life knowing what you were getting, knowing that you are getting a people who are inconsistent, people who run and rebel long after the cross. And so God, my hope today is that we can be a people who are moved by your word, that understand that you are not okay with hypocrisy and we shouldn't be either. That in the moments where we fall short, in the moments when we're overwhelmed by maybe the guilt of our sin, we're overwhelmed by shame, God, my prayer is that the gospel speaks to that where there's no more guilt, there's no more shame, understanding that that's been paid for. That Christ has gone to great lengths to save and redeem and restore what's been broken by sin. Father, may we leave today with a sense of energy and challenge wanting to be consistent, wanting to look more like you. With our heads held high, knowing that through our consistency, there is a way to make much of you. May that be our hope and our cry and our heart to make much of you in the way that we live our lives. Not trying to earn anything, but just trying to make much of you because we're so overwhelmed by your grace. We love you. It's your son's name, pray. Amen.